And we come back to Matthew chapter 24 this morning. Uh, We have been going through Matthew for a little while now, a couple years. been fascinating. I've been finding it fascinating. And we're in chapter 24. We've only got four more to go after this. It ends with 28, I believe. Um, But we're here in 24. Just started last week. The Great Olivet Discourse. This is the conversation or the discourse Jesus is having with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Teaching them about his second coming. Now, this is the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Uh, This is the time frame. He has just been through a long, grueling day in the temple courts, talking to the multitude, talking to the Pharisees, uh, laying out judgment and condemnation upon them as false leaders and the Jewish people who are not following the Messiah on Jerusalem itself and on the temple itself. It's all going to come down to destruction. And the disciples have asked him the question in verse 3 here of our chapter that triggers this whole conversation. They asked him, so when are you going to come? When is that going to happen? When are you going to actually come in and establish your kingdom once and for all? What's the destruction of the, when's the destruction of the Jerusalem and of the temple going to take place? And, and the, 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 your great kingdom, when's that going to happen? What are we supposed to be looking for? Give us some signs. Quote, they said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, they have the sense that it's right around the corner. Maybe only a few days, maybe a couple weeks tops. It's going to happen really, really soon. Everything seems to be coming together quickly. So turn in your Bibles if you have them or on your electronic device, Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to read starting at verse 3 and read down through verse 14. Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, in answer to their question, starting in verse going all the way through chapter 24, all the way through chapter 25, Jesus gives the longest answer to any question ever asked in the New Testament. He tells them that His coming is in the future, but He doesn't tell them how far in the future. 
None of us really know that. So far, it's been a little bit over 2,000 years since Jesus spoke those words, and it still hasn't come. Many biblical scholars are looking at the events that are transpiring in the world today and thinking, you know, this may be it. This, this might be the generation. But in all fairness, at the same time, it must be said that every generation has been saying, this is it. It's got to be in our generation, starting with the time of the disciples. The disciples thought it was going to happen. Everybody wants to know. Everybody's trying to figure out when's the time? When's it going to happen? What's going to take place? So beginning in verse 4, Jesus talks to them about some things that are going to happen before His coming. And He's saying that uh, when these things begin to happen, get ready, be ready. He called them the beginning of birth pains. We talked about that last week in verse 8. The birth uh, being the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the, his, his great king, the millennial kingdom. And just as birth pains escalate, not, experienced by, not speaking out experience, but semi-experience, they escalate in harshness and ex- um, escalate in frequency, so too will these events. And he points us to what he refers to in verse 21 as a time of great thelipsis. That's the Greek word thelipsis. The King James translates it as a time of great tribulation. The New International Version translates it as a time of great uh, distress. The Bible Dictionary gives a meaning of tribulation, affliction, trouble, anguish. A time that we've never, ever seen or experienced before. Now, You remember from last week that though the prophets of the Old Testament talked about all these events ahead of time, God didn't give them a timeline. They never never separated out the first coming and the second coming of Christ. They couldn't see that. They just talked about the Messiah coming and all these events are going to start taking place. And so it seemed to them that the first time the Messiah came would be the only time He would come and He would then begin to accomplish each event. The period between his two comings was hidden from the Old Testament prophets. And Paul calls it a mystery hidden from ages past, but now revealed to us. The mystery of the church age. And so we're in that time period now. In in the time period of the church age, waiting for the future, the second coming of Christ. But before he comes, he says there will be certain birth pains to to, uh, look for. Certain signs that we are to uh, experience. And there are six of them, beginning in verse 4. And we looked at the first one last week, which was deception. It says, Watch out, Jesus says, that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. And we noted that uh, there have already been a number of self-prescribed Messiah over the past 2,000 years, some presently in our world today. But Jesus is referring to a time in the future, in this passage here, when an abundance of false messiahs show up to try to deliver the world, a world that is deteriorating into chaos. They're, people are looking for something, somebody to save them, somebody that, to help them and, and straighten everything out. And we saw that after all the, the culmination of all these different messiahs, the Antichrist, the, the ultimate false messiah will come, will deceive the world into following him and worshiping him as if he were God. He's going to set himself up in, in the temple, 
right there in Jerusalem, taking that place. So first, there was deception. Secondly, there will be conflict. That's the second sign that Jesus points out. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now he says, you will hear. What, who is the you? I mean, he's talking to the disciples. It didn't happen in their time. Is he talking to us? I believe Jesus is using the word you as, in a general sense as one will hear. Those who are there at the tribulation time, the beginning of the tribulation time, they are the ones that are going to be hearing the uh, rumors of wars and wars go- going on. Now, have we seen these kind of things? Have we seen wars and rumors? Well, yes. It's all, in one sense, it's all over the place. But Jesus is talking about a global conflict all happening at, at that time. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. What's the difference? Well, basically, it's just the way countries are run. With nations basically that are uh, democratic in nature, and then there are kingdoms. And there's kingdoms such as Bahrain, Cambodia, United Kingdom. There's 30 others that have kings, and so there are kingdoms, there are nations. But what Jesus is saying, that the countries of the world are going to rise up against each other like never before. You may be asking, well, how do we know that's what he's saying here? There's always been war somewhere. I mean, look, look, look what's happening in Afghanistan right now, the horrible events there. And Israel and Palestine have been going at it for years. And we, we hear rumors of, of uh, perhaps what China has in mind for the United States. And, and Russia seems to be getting blamed for all kinds of stuff. Yes, that's true, but that's actually put down tiddlywinks <laughs> compared to what's going to take place there at the beginning of the tribulation. If we briefly go to the book of Daniel, let me show you a few things. We see exactly what Jesus is referring to. Daniel in chapter 11 is looking ahead to a future time period. And there he describes some of the warfare that's going to take place just before Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 4, it says, At the time of the end, okay, that's what Jesus is saying, right? The, the, The end time. At the time of the end, referring to the end of the age. The king of the south will engage him in battle. Who's him that Daniel is talking about? He's referring to the Antichrist. And if you were to study Daniel's prophecy, you'd find that in the end, the Antichrist rules a great kingdom, basically made up of the territory that once belonged to the old Roman Empire, a huge area. In other words, in a sense, it's it's going to be a unified Europe. Isn't that interesting? Think about what Europe has done already. They've already become one under the EU, under the European Union, with, with one currency, the euro. Daniel is saying that the Antichrist will become king of a Western confederacy, perhaps a union. How easy is that going to be when they're all, they've already become a union? He'll be the king of a revived Roman Empire engulfing Europe, and Daniel makes that very clear throughout his prophecy and so the Antichrist has established himself as a great power in, in the Europe area and is a threat, becomes a threat to the whole world. And of course, Israel, always threatened by their Middle Eastern neighbors, has been going on for 2,000 years. They want protection. 
And as we mentioned last week, they go into an agreement, into a covenant with the Antichrist to protect them. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 tells us that. They enter into that covenant for protection. That's the first part of the tribulation period. And then Daniel's prophecy goes on to say, and at that at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. That seems to be some kind of an African army, some kind of African coalition, confederacy that pushes north towards the power of the Antichrist. And then it says, and the king of the north, many scholars feel it's referring to Russia and its allies in the Middle East, they're up north, will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He talking about the Antichrist then, Daniel says, is going to retaliate. It says, and he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. Verse 41, he will also invade the beautiful land. That word for beautiful expresses beauty and glory and honor. And most feel it's referring to Israel. Many countries will fall, Daniel goes on, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. This, is, this part is the modern-day Arabia. He will extend his power over many countries, Daniel says. Verse 42, Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Cushites in submission. The Cushites are way down in present-day Kenya today. So he's gained all this territory as, and has defeated Russia, at least for the time being, Then verse 44 says, But reports from the east and the north will alarm him. What's to the east? Well, there's a great power of China that's over to the east. And the north, perhaps a part of Russia that has revived from the initial defeat. There's rumors of them rising up, Daniel says, in verse 44. And it continues, And he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. And verse 45 says, He will pitch His royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. He's saying He will establish Himself right in the middle of Jerusalem on Mount Zion and set Himself up as God. Yet, the end of verse 45, He will come to His end and no one will help Him. That's referring to the end of the Great Tribulation when Christ comes back to defeat him. Daniel's pointing to a world war beyond what we've ever experienced up to this point. And that's what Jesus is referring to in our passage as well. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 talks about the same thing. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and, and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. We talked about that a few weeks ago. The, world, uh, the whole world is going to converge on Jerusalem in a, fi- in a final incredible battle. In verse 2, the city will be captured, the houses ransacked, uh, and, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Ah, but then listen to verse 3 there in Zechariah 14. And this is, exact, and this is exactly what Daniel, how Daniel end, ended his prophecy. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. And he fights as he fights on a day of battle, Zechariah says. You can read, read about it in Haggai chapter 22. You can read about, starting in Revelation chapter 6 about all the seals that were being opened. 
Each one more devastating than the other. There's famines involved that massacre a quarter of the population of the world, and then another massacre of an additional one-third of the population. It's, it's going to be horrible. And back in our passage, Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He says, don't be alarmed. Really? Seriously? Why? Because he's saying this is not the end. This is not yet when Christ returns for the final time. This is not the time for the final judgment. The judgment is of God is going to be far worse than that for those who have not come to Christ. And the third sign, which will be part of the birth pains, and that is devastation. In verse 7 it says, There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. In the account that we read in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus talking about this, he adds pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. So there will be famines, there are going to be earthquakes and pestilences and fearful events and great signs from heaven. All this taking place. Now we understand famines to a certain degree. We read about it, we hear about it. We've had them in different parts of the world. We understand earthquake. Just this uh, past week, there's a 7.2 magnitude earthquake there, there in Haiti, and I trust that we've been praying about them. 1,900 dead, they say, 6,900 injured. These kind of things have happened periodically over the, over the time. Pestilences. This word refers to diseases and plagues, and we may have just a little bit of an understanding, perhaps, of what we've just gone through with this whole uh, COVID situation. Fearful events. Fearful is, is actually a mild translation here. It actually means that which strikes terror. That which strikes events that strike terror. For the people living in Afghanistan right now, the events that took place this last week, they're absolutely terrorized, uh, terrorized by them. What about great signs from heaven? could be referring to comets, which have been studied for centuries. There is one, apparently, that astronomers have their eye on right now. They're referring to it as the megacomet. The megacomet is out there. That uh, uh, It's estimated to be between 60 and 230 miles wide. To put that in perspective, the, the peninsula part of Florida is only 160 miles wide. So that mega comment is almost twice as, twice as wide or, or pretty close. But, quote, despite its size, experts say, the comet is nothing for the people of the earth to worry about. But there is a chance that it could put on a show in the sky on its first trip in the inner solar system in the far future. Okay. So, again, though we've had various disasters, never has it been to the extent that Jesus is talking about. Or as on a wide scale in our history as he's talking about. And if we were to look again at Revelation starting in chapter 6, I know this is a lot of stuff, but there's just so much more and trying to condense it here. This is when the Lamb, the, uh, Jesus Christ, begins opening the seals in Revelation chapter 6 and loosing the powers of the enemy on the earth. Let me just re- read a couple of them. In verse 5, It says, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. 
And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Today, a day's wages, if you think of uh, 10 to 12 bucks an hour, we're talking 80 to to $100 for a couple pounds of flour. Talking about famines here, the lack of basic necessities. Verse 7, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. His rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Fourth of the population. Today that would be about two billion people. Much of that will be due to famine and plague. Verse 12, I watched and he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black, the um, like sackcloth made of goat hair. The, the whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when, the, when it's shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. We're talking about mountains crumbling. We're talking possibly tsunamis covering islands. And if we flip over to Revelation 8 for a minute, starting in verse 7, it talks, uh, talks there about seven angels, each with a trumpet. Listen to a couple of these. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there, there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees was burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. Could be a mega meteor, something like a mountain. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, comet perhaps, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. They've actually named it here in Scripture. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. And the fourth angel sounded the trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck. And a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was uh, without light, and also a third of the night. So when Jesus said there in verse 7, there will be famines and earthquakes and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven, he wasn't kidding. And immediately after that, in verse 8, he says, and these are the beginning of birth pains. It's just the beginning. And it's interesting that he used that, that phrase uh, because, again, Jesus often used phrases or idioms or things that were already understood in the culture and the people that were there. The Jewish writings speak very frequently of the labor pains of the Messiah, So when Jesus said there are the birth pains, they would know exactly what he was talking about. And all of these things tell us that the coming of Christ is near, and they will all come at the end in such a way as far beyond our imagination. Let me give you number four, fourth sign, persecution. We don't like that. But verse 9 says, then, then you will be handed over to, the, to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. One commentator used the word desecration. 
rather than persecution here. Because to desecrate means to, to treat a holy thing in an unholy way. In the Old Testament, if an altar was broken up and torn down and the ashes were spread on the ground, it, would, it was referred to as having been desecrated. And that's what the concept is here. The holy people of God are going to be treated in such a way, in a very unholy way. There will be an outright and widespread persecution of believers that goes beyond all other persecutions. So he said those who are believers in that day will be handed over. That's a word often used uh, to, to refer to being arrested. It literally, it literally means, quote, to deliver up one to custody treacherously and by betrayal. In fact, a fuller definition of that word is to deliver up one to custody, to be judged, condemned, punished, scourged, tormented, put to death. All included in that word. And that's what's going to happen to many believers during that time period. Wait a minute. Where do the believers come from if the church is raptured out already? Good question. I'm glad you were wondering. A lot of people ask that question. When the church has been raptured, has been caught up in the air before the tribulation, God sets loose in the world two witnesses. Two evangelists spoken of in Revelation chapter 11, and they go everywhere proclaiming the truth. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years, exactly half of the tribulation time. Well then, if the church is raptured, if, if we as believers have already been taken up and don't have to go through all of that tribulation uh, time period, which I praise the Lord for, who then are those who believe that have to do that? Well, I personally think that there's basically three categories of people. One, church people. Let me explain. There are thousands of people who attend churches periodically, some perhaps even regularly, that are going through the motions. Never made that heart commitment to Jesus Christ. Never allowed Christ to become Lord of their life. When Christ comes back to rapture His church, when Christ comes back to, to catch His church up in the air with all the believers, they're going to be left behind. But, as they then hear these two witnesses, they, they've heard the message in the churches when they hear these two witnesses, many of them will turn to Christ. Secondly, I think there will be many people outside the church as well. As we mentioned last week, the, the, the disasters that are going to start taking place and the world is going to go, start going in chaos. People are looking for something, looking for a Savior, looking for a message of hope. And these two evangelists are going to be going out and there are going to be many that are going to be turning to Christ through them. And then the Jewish nation will have a final opportunity as well. They will have a final opportunity. Many of them as well will realize what they did to the Messiah so many years ago. And I believe they're going to call out in repentance. And according to Scripture, there will be people who come to the Savior during that period, both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and non-Jews, and they are the ones who will be the objects of persecution. 
Desecration, treating holy objects shamefully. Verse 9 says, they will be put to death. It's a word for murder. They will be murdered. And you will be hated by all nations. Why? He said, because of me. Because of Jesus Christ. That's already started. I mean, if, if you think about it, that concept, that sentiment is already build, building around the world. Even in our own country, there are people who hate believers because of Jesus Christ, because of his name. And that's the issue. They hate Christ. The world hates Christ. They always have. They always will, especially when they are under the control of the Antichrist in the end. Throughout history, starting with the disciples themselves, believers have been hated. Believers have been killed. There have been martyrs and martyrs and martyrs, but at that time, it'll be way beyond anything that's ever happened. Worldwide desecration, worldwide persecution of the saints. They'll be martyred and massacred from one end of the globe to the other in that time period. Now, there's a fascinating passage in Revelation 7 that actually affirms this. Listen, verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Oftentimes we, we, we've looked at that verse and said, yeah, that's, that's the church, that's all the believers. No, that's not what he's referring to. Let me show you in a minute. Uh, that, that same verse goes on to say, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then in verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? Verse 14, And he said, this elder said, No. And then through the revelation, And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? It has to be referring to those who came to Christ during that tribulation time. And they were martyred. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They, they, that can only be referring to the salvation by the blood of Christ that was shed for them as well on the cross so many years ago. And then the next sign that Jesus gives is really a tragic one, which, which we find in verse 10, and that is... The turning away from the faith. Listen, and at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. So we have deception, conflict, devastation, which refers to all peoples worldwide, believing and unbelieving. Then Jesus kind of focuses in on those um, who become believers, and there is persecution that comes upon them. We just talked about that. And unfortunately, that will then result in many turning away from the, in the, from the faith. In a word, defection. They will defect. The pressure is going to be so great as the world begins to persecute and kill believers that some people who have superficially identified with Jesus Christ, which, still is, is, which is happening even in, in our day today, like the seed that fell among the thorny ground. Remember that parable that we talked about? It doesn't really have any root, but it pops up and it looks good for a while. Some people who initially identify with Jesus Christ but have not had their hearts transformed, when they see the price that is to be paid, they run. And they're not willing to pay that price. 
They then turn on the believers. Not only do they reject Christ, but then they become, begin to hate the true believers and begin to betray them. Well, again, how do we know they won't be true believers? Well, really, Scripture is quite clear on that. In 1 John 2.19, talking about defectors, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Jesus himself said in John 8.31, to the Jews who have believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Matthew 10.32, Jesus says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me, that's what's going to be happening in the tribulation time. Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Very clear. Again, Matthew 16.24 says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The person who says, I don't want the cross. I don't want to die. I don't want to be uh, persecuted. I, I, I'm getting out. I quit. They never belong to Jesus in the first place. Not only are they going to opt out for safety, but then they're going to turn. They're going to go to the next step and actually betray each other. And how tragic is that? What would that betrayal lead to? It's going to be leading to the killing of many. It's what Jesus uh, just said in verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. That's coming from the betrayal. Mark writes about it in Mark chapter 13, 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. It's a promise. That's the falling away. That's the defection of many. So some will give up because the price is too high. But there's another reason that Jesus gives as well there in verse 11, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. It's going back to the deception. He goes back to what he's kind of saying in verse 4. Remember he talked about the false messiahs? There's also going to be false prophets coming. It's like he's reminding them of the great deception that's going to be taking place, lying about the truth, uh, proclaiming lies to be truth, and not, not allowing the real truth to be heard or to be preached. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. This is already happening in, the, in our world, happening in our own country. Think about the secularization of our schools and our institutes, getting rid of Bibles, getting rid of prayer. Most all other religions are held up and encouraged and, and, uh, and supported. But anything to do with Christ, it's being likened to hate and evil extremists. But it's going to be so much worse at that time, with the consequence being persecution and death. The third, there's a third aspect in this falling away, the defection from the faith. There's persecution, there's deception, and verse 12 says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. The word used for wickedness here actually means a condition of being without law, lawlessness, violating, breaking, rebelling against God's law, against God's word. Is sin run amok? And the sin will be so prevalent and so normalized that it will draw many people who are moving perhaps towards the truth, draw them right back away from it. 
Paul tells us about this very thing in, again in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Although they, knew, they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. People who have grown up in church, both young and old alike, are getting sucked out of the church because of the deception that is growing and growing and growing and will continue to grow. And that's that's going to happen in the end, far worse than it is now. But here's something positive (laughs) after all of that. There is something positive. Verse 13 says, But the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved. How will you be able to tell those who are saved? Because they won't fall away. They won't defect. They're not going to leave because the price is too high. They're not going to leave because they've been deceived. They're not going to leave because they love evil. One commentary that I was reading said this, If this were all to break loose on us right now, we'd find out who the defectors were, wouldn't we? We'd find out the people who didn't want to pay the price of death. We'd find out the people who could be wooed off by the false prophets. We'd see the ones who loved their lawlessness more than they loved God. It would all become clear, and so will it then. End quote. And so we see them in Revelation 7, brought out of the great tribulation in garments of white, these who have been martyred. We see them in Revelation 19 as Christ comes back and they're riding with him with garments of white. They they endured and they have been given these robes of white. One more sign. Last one. Proclamation. Proclamation, the final sign, the final beginning birth pain is proclamation, is preaching, preaching of the gospel. And before Jesus comes back, this has to happen. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Before the end comes, before the establishing of his kingdom, this has to happen. Worldwide proclamation of the gospel. In spite of persecution, in spite of defectors, um, in spite of the false prophets, in spite of the false Christ, in spite of all the catastrophic uh, Holocaust-type events, the wars, the famines, the earthquakes, in spite of all that, he says the gospel of the, of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. In the midst of all that, how in the world is that going to take place? Listen once again to Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. I found this fascinating. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Folks, that's the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. 
That preaching of the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world isn't talking about what we are doing right now around the world. I don't know if I ever actually realized that until I I got to studying this. It's talking about what this angel is going to do in one great supernatural, miraculous, final evangelization of the world. It happens right before the judgment. That's why the, the, the angel says, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of judgment has come. You're out of time. He says, There is no time left. Man's days are over. You better get right with God. That actually applies to us today, doesn't it? In a very real sense. In Hebrews chapter 9, 27, we read, People are destined to die how many times? One time. And after that, to face judgment. We don't have to wait until the return of Christ. We don't have to wait until the tribulation time. We could die on our way home, trusting we're not going to. It could happen. And the question we need to ask ourselves, are we ready? (laughs) Am I ready? If that were to happen, am I ready to face judgment? Is my heart right with God? If it's not, we need to take the angel's message seriously. Fear God and give Him glory. Make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. We, need to, we may need to do business with God before it's too late. We need to ask Jesus to be truly Lord of our life. And if He is, no worries. Except sharing this wonderful news with those around us. That's what he's, the task that he's given us to do. Folks, Jesus has given us, those who have accepted Jesus Christ, those of us who have made Jesus Lord of our life, he has given us a guarantee. We've talked about that in, in, the, uh, in the letter to the Ephesians. The Apostle Paul calls it a guarantee. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit living in our life. And those are the ones Jesus is going to come back and say, come on up with me. In a moment, we're going to sing a great hymn. Starts out by saying, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest, Jesus Christ, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. It's the assurance we have. And then it ends with, I bow before the cross of Christ and marvel at His love divine. God's perfect Son has sacrificed to make me righteous in God's eyes. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful promise. Are you ready? Are you righteous in God's eyes? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning, (laughs) it's a heavy message. Heavy passage in your word about the horrible events that are going to come because of the evil that is prevalent. But Father, the time is not there yet. We still have time, number one, to make our own lives right. Number two, to share the love of Jesus Christ and share what Christ has done for each and every person in our neighborhood, in our town, in, in surrounding towns uh, uh, around the world. Let them know that we don't have to go through that, that we can be saved, we can be transformed, and we can be caught up with Christ. 
Father, I pray that you would encourage us in the fact that we know that we have that guarantee and, and uh, we, we can live our life in praise and glory and honor and, and fill with hope and expectation of the return of Christ. But Father, don't, make us, don't allow us to be complacent. Don't let us sit here and, and twiddle our thumbs. I pray that we would realize that the time is coming. Could be our generation, might be the next generation, but Father, we are certainly closer than we were 2,000 years ago. And we need to be ready. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.